0: Our scripture today uh, comes from uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 13, and it's found on page 1839 on your pew Bibles. It says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all of his holy ones. Amen. When Paul and Silas first came to Thessalonica, the place to which Paul is writing this letter, this is how Acts describes what happened. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. As you can see, Christianity was not very take, taken very kindly in the city of Thessalonica. Paul had initial success preaching the gospel, but very soon he was accused of turning the world upside down and treason against Caesar. And this wasn't just true in Thessalonica. In fact, it sounds like the the Thessalonians were completely ready for Paul and Silas to come and preach the gospel. They said, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. In other words, we've heard plenty about these men and what happens when they come and preach. And we were hoping to get rid of them on sight, but here they are with a foothold. We talked a couple weeks ago about one of the main reasons that people weren't ha- very happy that Christianity came. When Christians preached, they, th- they taught that in order to serve Jesus and be a Christian, you had to give up worshiping other gods. This was a big deal because everyone thought that the only way that societies functioned was because of the will of the gods. If people suddenly stopped worshiping the gods, then they thought that everything would fall apart. It was a social duty to worship the gods, and Christians were encouraging people to give up that duty. It's the kind of thing that made the Christians to blame whenever anything went wrong. If there's a fire in Rome that destroys everything, it's because the gods are angry. And if the gods are angry, it's because the gods aren't worshipped enough. And if they're not worshipped enough, that's because the Christians are spreading the message that people don't need to worship the Roman gods. There's other things that Christians did that made them weird, too. Christians refused to watch gladiators because they thought it was immoral to watch people beat each other to a pulp and then die. Not to mention that there were pagan rituals in all of them. Christians generally weren't big fans of the theater because a lot of the plays were meant to make fun of Christians. Not to mention that there were all kinds of pagan gods in them. One of the biggest bonding moments in the ancient world was when someone would sacrifice an animal to a god and hold a banquet with what the remains of the animal. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that it was fine to eat that food as long as he remembered that the sacrifice wasn't a real sacrifice to a real god. But a lot of Christians were still uncomfortable going to those banquets. Kind of like a recovering alcoholic that hates even the smell of alcohol. These new Gentile Christians didn't want to be around anything that even had a whiff of pagan gods. And you could understand it. As Paul encourages at the end of the book, many Christians also didn't participate in the political process because it had to do with a lot of corrupt money things. And it was hard not to become corrupt yourself. You add all this up, not worshiping pagan gods, not going to see the gladiators, not going to the theater, not eating at banquets, and not participating in politics, You can see that there are huge parts of society that Christians refuse to engage with. Then you throw in that weird practice of waking up early on Sunday mornings to worship a guy who Rome literally crucified, and the Christians looked like really weird people. So you can imagine why the leaders of Thessalonica would say these men have turned the whole world upside down. Serving King Jesus instead of Caesar was a big deal. It wasn't just something that people did on Sundays and then returned to their normal life. It meant avoiding a lot of things that normal people did and doing a bunch of things that no normal person would ever do. As sad as it is, you can imagine that you'd have a hard time keeping contact with your family as a Christian. Your parents and siblings probably thought you were a weirdo and might cut off contact. In a culture that took honor and shame very seriously, It was shameful to be associated with a Christian who does all that weird stuff like hanging around the poor and slaves and worshiping some guy that ended up on a cross. Your family wouldn't have been all that happy to be the family of a Christian. Getting disowned for being a Christian would probably just have been part of the bargain. And all of this was some of the milder consequences of being a Christian. Harsher physical persecution was always a threat. All this to say that in the book of Mark, when Peter says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. The people reading that book would not have thought of that as a theoretical idea. They wouldn't have thought, hmm, would I have left everything to follow Jesus? No, most of them already would have left everything to follow Jesus. Their family would have been ashamed of them. They'd have, been, they'd have given up the handouts that come with being part of the political process in Rome. They would have given up on being a normal part of society because they wouldn't eat at banquets in honor of their gods. They wouldn't go to the theater or to the gladiatorial games like regular normal people. And Instead, they would actually have to work for a living every day and share everything they have with the poor. And if something really bad happened in the city, you could bet that the whole city would blame them. But Jesus responds to Peter and Mark and says, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Keep in mind that the majority of what he promises for people who left everything for him comes now in this time. Hear it again. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or or lands who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And he only gives almost as an afterthought in the age to come eternal life. He's not saying, you might have to give up everything for me, but don't worry, in the age to come you'll have eternal life. Of course, even that would be worth it. But he says, now in this time, you'll receive a family back. Even when you leave your family to follow Jesus, you're not doing it alone. There's tons of people all over the world that have done it. And when you follow Jesus, you become a part of a whole community of people just as committed to it as you are. And so the church becomes your house and your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers and your children and your lands. As strange as it sounds, then, it would not have been a hypothetical to the people reading Mark's gospel. Most of them, Jew and Gentile alike, would have had to give up tons of opportunities and relationships for the sake of the gospel. But they would be left, but be left behind by those relationships, only to find a new family in the church, where they are loved and accepted. And as strange as it sounds, it just might be the experience of a lot of us in this church. Maybe you haven't left your family for Jesus, but if you've been connected with the church, you just might have felt it as an extended family. Maybe for you, the church has been your house and your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers and your children and your lands. In fact, I think this just might be more common than you think. This is an area with a lot of opportunities because of D.C., which means a lot of people move here to take advantage of them and in doing so, they end up leaving house and brothers and sisters and lands and all that. For whatever reason, a lot of us have had to leave that stuff behind. And the same is true for a lot of people in our communities. Our church, which already feels like a family, has a really good opportunity to provide families for people who had to leave their families. When we had our retreat a month ago, it was really striking when Paul Stutzman asked the question, what experience did you find most meaningful at Drainsville? And the answers to that question were very rarely a specific sermon or a song or even a Bible study. It was times where you felt loved and included in this community, where you felt like you were part of the family. You encountered God through potlucks and games and times together. You might have found it meaningful when we stuck together even through the tough stuff. And if the most meaningful experience at Drainsville was a worship service, it most often was love feast, which is probably the most family-oriented experience of worship there possibly could be. At Drainsville, we take the idea that wherever two or more are gathered, God is there with them, seriously. The Holy Spirit is in each of us, and that means that when we encounter one another, we really are encountering God somehow. Just listen to the real affection that's in Paul's voice in this passage. He's writing in this letter about just how much he misses the family of God that he got to know in Thessalonica. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your heart's blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Paul isn't a university lecturer who's just getting everyone caught up in the Gospel 101. He genuinely misses the Christians in Thessalonica. They have become part of his family, and he'd do anything to be able to see them again. This is genuine affection and love we're looking at. And that's the kind of affection that becomes part of, that's, that comes from being part of the family of God. It's not just Paul's brain in this letter. It's his whole self. He's longing to see his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he misses them. Now, this family talk might sound like it's a nice, cool side benefit to, being, to, be the, part, to the gospel. Like, each one of us is forgiven by God, and so we all happen to be forgiven by God and have a right relationship with him. And the church is this thing that a bunch of people who have a right relationship with God happen to do. But the church, as the family of God, is a lot more than that. It's not like a comic book fan club, which started because a whole bunch of people liked comic books. The church is the family of God, established by God on earth, and it was always his plan from the beginning. That's why in the Gospel of John, right before his crucifixion, Jesus spends two whole chapters praying for the church. Because the family of God used to be the people of Israel, the children of Abraham. And when they said the family of God, they meant the special family that God made a covenant with and chose over all other nations. It was that family that God would use to spread the kingdom to the whole world and to bind up the brokenhearted peoples and set the world right, even in the face of suffering and sin. Eventually, if that family would be successful, it would be almost like a new creation, like everything evil and sad about this world would come untrue. But now in Jesus, just as the Old Testament had prophesied, that family of God has been extended to every nation and every people, so that anyone can be part of God's family. And it's always been a part of the plan. But actually, it's a lot more than that. And it's way, way better than even the most optimistic Israelites could have ever dreamed. Because before, the family of God was just the special people of Israel that God had chosen. But God became a person in Jesus Christ. And he joined himself physically to the whole people of Israel. And in his resurrection, he united himself to the whole entire world. And what that means is when we say the family of God now, we don't mean the special people that God has chosen. As cool as that would be, we mean the family which the God of the entire universe is a part of in Jesus Christ. God has united himself to the church physically. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So as almost blasphemous as it sounds, I, Joey Moss, a sinful human, am through the church and the family of God, a son of God. And as a son of God, I am a brother to Christ himself, and just as much a brother to all of you. The church isn't the special family that God has chosen, much less a Jesus fan club, but the physical and spiritual and literal family of God, the family which God himself has made him a part of. During Easter, we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. And in doing so, he became the first little part of a new world. God had promised that he would create a new world which doesn't suffer from evil or pain or violence. And everyone thought that it would all come at once, at the end of the world. But instead, Jesus began the new heavens and the new earth that the world has needed since the beginning, right in the middle of history through his resurrected body. And he has infused anyone who becomes a Christian with the power of that new creation, so that we ourselves carry little parts of the new heaven and new earth within ourselves. And he tasks the church with spreading the new heavens and new earth into the world, so that people get a taste of what the redeemed kingdom of God looks like. And they can look into the future and see what it will look like for God to finally reign over the whole earth. We bear witness to the reality that this world as we see it, which struggles for power and prestige and causes suffering and pain, isn't all there is. And we do that by living like we're already in that new world. We behave like citizens of a different kingdom, And the world sees that and realizes that's all they ever needed. And we spread this family everywhere we go, including more and more people and the love and affection that comes from being brothers and sisters with each other and with Jesus and having God as our Father. And what a different kind of world that is, where people from all different ethnicities and cultures and political parties and all kinds of different divisions come together as one in Christ Jesus and participate in the affection and love that comes from the family of God. What all this means is that when people come to our church, they should get a rest from that evil and pain and suffering in this world. They ought to be able to experience just a little foretaste of that new heavens and new earth, where people see that we have come together in unity, love, and affection. We have an opportunity to practice all this at our church forum, We're all passionate about figuring out where our church is going. But we don't need to be like the rest of the world, getting personal and getting our egos wrapped up in it. Because that's not how a family ought to work. Instead, we keep our focus on Jesus and think about how we might best glorify him in humility. Remember the affection that comes from having each other as brothers and sisters and God as our Father. So now the question is, how do we expand our family? because it can be intimidating sometimes to walk into a place where everyone already has relationships that have existed for decades and decades. And some of that is unavoidable. We really do have so much God-given affection for each other, so it's easy as a new person to stick out like a sore thumb. But there might be some ways that we might make it harder to join our family that aren't necessary. So as we move toward our church forum, let's keep that experience in mind. How do we break down all the unnecessary barriers toward joining our family? Because we have something really good and important to invite people to. Why make it harder than it needs to be? There are long lost brothers and sisters out there. Why make it harder for them to come home? Let's pray. God, bind us together with the affection that comes from your Holy Spirit. Remind us of our calling to be your family in this world. We long to see more brothers and sisters in our family. We aren't always sure how to bring them home. Help us to see the ways that we make it harder for them to join us so that nothing unnecessary would stand between them and us. In the name of your son and our brother, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.